Today's reading is from Luke chapter 15. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country, where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother's here, he told him, and your father's slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughter the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because your brothers of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The story of the prodigal son we have for us this morning. It's um, one many of us know well. I think we know the story well, although if you slow down and read it, um, you often find out ways into the story that you don't know. Um, uh, it's a complex image in which you can sort of move through in many different ways. Um, You can even find your own soul um, 
several people will point this out if you study the prodigal son. And within each of the three characters, the son, the elder son, the younger son, the elder son, and the father, in these sort of ways and sort of finding it. And yet, um, it's the story that Jesus tells combined with two others. Um, in the introduction, which is always w- worth keeping in mind when we get to the story, is now the text collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees of the law matter, mattered, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The three parables we heard today, from 99 to 1, from 10 to 1, and then this one about two sons, which is strange because you have two sort of non-human objects, and then you have two sons sort of based in um, polarity. You know, you have in the, in the 99 and in the 1, you have these sort of um, non-human things. And so it's the action of the searcher who sort of drives the story. But this final one, Jesus brings up these two different ways of sort of understanding and being in this. Um, how is it we, we sort of hear that part of it and combined with the other? And we were talking about it at morning prayer on Wednesday, but the, the 99 to the 1, I think, is just crazy. Um, the guy has 100 sheep, which is a moderate-sized amount of sheep in the ancient Near East. He loses one. He leaves the 99 in the field to go find the one, or in some translations, the wilderness, which makes no sense whatsoever. And then after that, um, he searches for the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his soldiers and goes home. You think you would bring it back to the 99 you left in the wilderness. And then he tells his friends and neighbors, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I don't even think they knew the sheep was lost. And he still got 99 he left in the wilderness. Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This heart of the one who goes and searches out one that is lost. Now, one commentator pointed out that that for the 99 to feel secure, to have a shepherd that seeks one who is lost is certainly a good thing. But as we sang in that last song, uh, the overwhelming reckless love of God, you hear some recklessness in this. Or the next story about the ten and the one. One, The woman has ten silver coins and loses one. She doesn't she light a, hamp, ho- a lamp, sweep the house, and carefully search until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together. Just, I had ten coins. I lost one. I found it. You know what I should do? I should call my friends and neighbors and tell them I found it. Now, as we were talking about this, some people were like, well, you know, you lose your car keys and you lose your cell phone, but you only have one of them. This woman still has nine other coins, and she's calling her friends together to rejoice in the one that she found. It just seems to me like these are um, exaggerated in some forms. You know, we're going to have a party for the one coin I found when I had ten. And the coins are not particularly, um, they're worth about a day's wages, which would be a bummer to, to lose. But if you lose your paycheck in this country, which I did when I was young and stupid, um, before direct deposit was a thing for the young people, um, you could lose your paycheck, and you lost two weeks' worth of wages, 
And if you went and asked your workplace for them, they would often deduct some sort of money to, to uh, cancel the previous check, um, which was always a ton of fun. Um, but she loses one day's wages, and she throws this party to rejoice over it. And yet he, and it's the same, in the same way, I tell you, there is more rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus' table fellowship, which is what the Pharisees and scribes are sort of accusing him of, of eating with these people, he draws to mind that, that when one is lost and they're brought back, there is great rejoicing. There is a great party. And this is often, I think, where um, Pope Benedict, as he writes about this, he talks about the God of the philosophers in some ways, and that they're, they're very self-made in one way, but they also don't celebrate. I mean, when you think about this one, this is a party like God. Um, and it's one, a party over, uh, in sort of reckless kind of ways, in ways that sort of abandon normal in a lot of ways. Um, and so it's, a, it's this next story that begins, that draws out a whole different thing. There was a man who had two sons. Now most of us know this is the story of the prodigal son, which is really only half the story, because there's a whole other half about the elder son. And if it was filmed like we film our things, where's the most important part of a movie often? At the end. So the final conflict in this story is between the elder son and the father. It's the question that's raised there. The younger son's an important character as well. And we'll find ourselves, I think as we sit with the story, drawn to different poles in our life. There are times in which we see ourselves as younger sons who have gone off and squandered our way in a foreign country. And there are times in which we feel like we're the ones who have stayed at home, done all the service, and yet we feel like slaves in that. And it was funny, at small group, so we talked about this twice this week, at small group, two people, both firstborn children, very quickly raised their hands and said, I'm the elder son. Um, I feel like the elder son, which is a bold thing to say. But if you ex- use this parable, and I think it is wise to sit with it, to, to sort of open up your soul in some ways, you'll probably find instances where you feel like the elder son. You feel like the younger son. And so as I studied this this past week, one of the more helpful books that I read, actually listened to, but read some as well, is Henry Nowen's Return of the Prodigal, which um, is, he was able to go to Russia. This is Rembrandt's um, painting, The Return of the Prodigal. And he was able to go to Russia where this painting is and sort of sit with it for multiple hours. And he sort of, as he went around, um, at this point in his life, the first time, he's deciding whether he should continue to teach at Harvard and Princeton and all these places, or whether he should join Dayspring, which is this community in Toronto, Canada, where he basically lives with the severely mentally disabled, the almost mute. Um, and as he's sort of in that sort of discerning about it, he sees this on, on somebody's room, and he thinks through it, but then he ends up in Russia, and he's able to go sit uh, because of a friend, good to have friends, um, and sort of take this painting in. Um, and so that, that book is sort of meditations on the story as it appears in the Gospels, but he does a lot of looking at the painting. His heart was sort of torn open. I love when he first saw it, which I think is the proper response to the story of the prodigal son, is when he saw this painting, he said, I don't know whether to laugh or to cry. 
And I think there's a profoundness in sort of like, you hear this story, and it's got a ridiculousness to it that if you don't laugh, it might be hard to enter into the party at the end. But if you don't weep, you kind of miss the point of what's going on as well. And in this, um, you have the father um, uh, blind, almost embracing the son, uh, missing a shoe. I mean, I read a lot about this painting. Um, You notice he's missing a shoe. Um, Often people think the elder brother is the one on the right, sort of there in judgment. Nobody really knows who the other two figures are in it, but there's this embrace that comes here. So much so, and I think this is perhaps the best way to look at the parable, is it's the story of the homecoming of our souls. The story of a homecoming. Which is hard, I think, in the modern world, because I've moved at least eight times, and my home doesn't exist anymore. My parents sold it. Um, I mean, it exists, but it's not my home. Um, like this, this way of sitting with what does it mean to go home physically, I think is lost to many of us. And so then to ask, what does it mean to return home spiritually, becomes a harder thing to conceive of as well. Um, But it is what this parable, I think, asks us to do, is what does it mean for this homecoming to take over in our lives? And so what I want to do is sort of walk through the parable and make some observations about what's going on in it. But what I think is most important, as we gave you those copies of Luke, and there's still some at the front, is to take some time to read and pray through Luke 15 yourself. 99 and 1. 9 and 1. And the story of two brothers, each of which all end in a party, each of which end in celebration. The parable begins, uh, well, this is, sorry, part of what Luke is, is going to display in this parable. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Or as he says in a different spot, Jesus, um, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Which is always, I mean, for elder brothers, which I've had that temptation to in my life, to think that you're healthy in the face of God. Uh, Rowan Williams, I think, would call that the thinnest form of self-hatred. A thinly veiled self-hatred, I believe, is the phrase. Is that when confronted with God, here I am healthy. No need of any touch. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. There was a man who had two sons. The younger said to the father, Father, give me share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. If you're familiar with this parable and have heard it preached on before, this is one of the common observations that sort of draws out the beginning of this, is essentially what the younger son says to the father is, you're dead to me. In order to get your inheritance, the father has to be dead. And so what the younger son sort of does at the beginning of this parable is declares death to the father's household. And the father, and, and, um, Kenneth Bailey, who wrote a big book on sort of reading this Uh, parable through the Middle Eastern eyes, but one of his favorite observations in this that showed up several times while I was studying was, I asked people all over the ancient Near East and Africa and all sorts of countries that if somebody came and this happened, what would you do to that son? And almost universally, the response is beat them or throw them out. Um, The recklessness of this father, 
Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divides the property between them. This will come up later, but, but you notice that he divides the property between the younger son and the elder son. The father, at this moment, lives on the generosity of the property of the elder son. The father has no property at this moment. Now, in the ancient Near East, this would be more like, uh, people are like, how much does the younger son get? It seems like he gets a third of the property. A third of what's there. Um, and so it starts, the parable, with death. It's Robert Fair Capen, who's quoted on the back of the bulletin, sets up this parable as it's all about death. Which is why I think this parable comes in Lent. It's always annoyed me because this is sort of a prescribed reading from the lectionary. And I always think this parable doesn't really belong in Lent because it's about a party. But... Capon, in his mind, says, you know, each one of these characters has to undergo their own death. And in that sense, it fits in Lent quite well, this this death of repentance and self-assertion. The parable continues, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. I just think it's comical that the... um, The elder son, later when the younger son comes back, says um, he spent all his money on prostitutes, um, which would be within the context of wild living in the ancient Near East. Um, But it's often the people who stay at home who sort of never live in sinful lives. That's like the only thing they can come up with. Um, Like, yeah, it's prostitutes. I know it's prostitutes. And like people who have lived in distant countries and squandered away all that they have, they're like, Congrats, elder brother. That's the tip of the iceberg of what I've been through. The destruction I've seen, the pain I've seen, the ways in which I've tortured myself and others. Yeah, it was all prostitutes. Um, If only it was all prostitutes. He squanders his wealth and wild living. And after he had spent everything, this is where things just get worse, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him in the field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. No one gave him anything. Couple, I think, extreme sort of observations here. Um, The first is that he goes out to a distant country. Um, Henry Nouwen really, in his book, really nailed this, is that This is where we go to disassociate from the house of our father. You leave behind the traditions, the goodness, the order, and you try to make yourself and pursue freedom. Which is interesting, and this is what happens, I think, often in the sense of like, when we throw off the shackles of that which binds us to pursue freedom, we often will end up in our own slavery. The freedom that the, elder, the younger son pursues only lasts as long as it can last with money. And I love that there's a severe famine. Well, I don't love that there's a severe, it's a parable. So I think it's an interesting detail that there's a severe famine in the land. Because if you have ever succumbed to your own addictive or destructive tendencies or watch someone succumb to their own addictive and destructive tendencies of sort of self-assertion and freedom, what it often ends with is a famine. Sure, you may still be able to get whatever substance or idea or sort of thing that, that sort of feeds you and something like that, but it becomes like emptiness to your mouth. 
You continue to seek and pursue those things, and yet it doesn't fill the first time that 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 touched your lips or you consumed that with your eyes. It's as you've spent everything to pursue this freedom away from the flourishing that God sort of designs and desires for us, it's only natural, often, that a severe famine appears. All that there is to eat, there's nothing left to eat. So he went and hires himself out to um, a citizen of that country. Again, here, instead of sort of being in his house, he's sort of putting on... um, the nature of this foreign land. Uh, Nowen says that this is the land of our addictions and our idolatries, that we sort of go out to this land. And this is, for Jewish listeners, foreign land would have that association. You leave the house of stability in order, and you go to a foreign land to participate in the idolatries in which you were banned from in the land that you were born in. I think you could think a long time about what does it mean to go to a distant country? And then hire yourself. Um, St. Augustine and others really got into like, he's transferred his citizenship from one place to another. He hires himself out to a citizen of that land. And day labor, which he becomes, is one of the most sort of fraught methods of work. You don't know where you're going to work tomorrow or if you're going to have work tomorrow. And he sends them out in the fields to feed the pigs. In the context of this story, if this, well, it's got Jewish listeners, let's put it that way. It's never quite defined whether the father and the sons are, are participants in Israel, but certainly with the hearers of this, to say that he went out to feed the pigs means like, welcome to the bottom of the bottom. Ritually unclean, destructive animals that you wouldn't associate with. You're, you're sort of continually making yourself unclean in the ways in which your work is oriented. Again, if you've watched ever your own destructive, addictive, numbing tendencies, um, you can see how this... And then he longed to fill his stomach. Um, how we long to eat and be full again in that spot. Um, He even wants to eat what the pigs are eating. Reached a new low. And this line, I think, is, you sit with this story from a different angle for a long time, but this one, I think, can devastate you in certain different ways, is that no one gave him anything. If you have friends that you've, used and brought in, if you have friends in which you're bound together in destructive and addictive tendencies, here's what often happens. When you run out of money, when you run out of whatever you guys shared together, the helping hand also disappears. Friendship, based on lies and the pursuit of these things, often when you're like, I've reached the bottom, can you help? One, They often end up at the bottom with you as well. But two, the friendship doesn't stay stable enough for that to happen. Remember, there were guys in in college who would, uh, they were football players who would dip um, tobacco a lot, and they shared that kind of, and they had a community around it. Um, But when you reached your bottom, nobody would help you with getting more. Um, They were kind of broke, and that was their habit. So it was like you had friends when you had it, and when you had none, 
nobody really would help you in that way. I think that says a lot about the way in which we order our worlds. When he came to his senses, the younger son, sorry, as, as Capon said, this, everybody in this parable is dead. <laughs> so the younger son has descended to death in feeding the pigs. But then he takes a breath. He comes to his senses. How many of my father's servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? He remembers his father's household. And there is um, no small amount of thinking about this remembering, I think, that, that we can sort of perceive, is to remember where goodness resides, to remember where love resides. Remember the household that you sell out in to go to your ordained destruction in a different land. Remember that his father is actually good. Even his servants have food to spare. And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, and this, is, this confession is quite amazing because, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I have sinned against God and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The confession is crazy because he says, Father, I'm no longer willing to be called your son. If you're calling someone father, as a young male in this case, what are you? You're the young, you're the son. Within his own memory of this goodness of the father, even in his desire to say, look, I've messed up, here's my confession, he can only call this one sort of that voice of stability, father. He has a sense in which he's no longer able to be called his son, but he's not going to abandon the language he has for this one, which is the language of father. Father, I'm no longer um, worthy to be called your son. The, we, we've sung some version of Psalm 51 every Sunday during Lent, but um, have mercy on me according to your unfailing kindness. That beginning of that Psalm 51 is amazing because it's have mercy on me because I know you are one who is unfailing with your kindness. The writer of Psalm 51 already knows the character of the one he asked for mercy from. So it is here, too, in some ways, that, that I don't think he maybe expects to be raised back. Well, I don't think he expects to be raised back to, um, to sonship. But he has this way of sort of seeing that, like, confessing even at the start of his confession that this one is one of goodness. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worried, worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father, um, so he got up uh, in the, the Greek, is actually one of the ways in which Luke is, describes Jesus' resurrection. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. The Greek word for compassion, is, if you're familiar with it, is this like sickness in the gut. Like in his gut, he feels compassion for him. He ran to his son, Many people will point out that running was not something fathers did in the ancient Near East, so he has this sort of way in which he's taking on something he's not supposed to do and throws his arms around him and kisses him. The sterility, the sterileness of the gods of the philosophers 
He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, the confession he's been working on his way, uh, now it talks about how when he was looking at the, the painting, he, he, the times in his life in which he sort of walks through his confessions as if they matter all that much. Father, I have sinned against you in this heavens and earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly, quick. This parable, like we interject a lot into it whenever we hear it, whenever we read it. What are the emotions? What's going on here? But the father, at least from my perspective, does not seem that interested in the son's confession. He's come home. The son starts his confession, but you notice he doesn't even really get to finish it. Make me one of your hired hands. The father interrupts his confession. And I'll tell you, if you've been blessed enough to have somebody in your life who actually really loves you, and you come to them and you say, here's where I've done wrong, you often find that they're not that impressed with your literary skills and giving them your confession. They already embrace you in that spot. Um, certainly, there's those of us who are like, well, maybe you should make him pay for a little bit, which here's where the reckless not, recklessness of the father comes in, is he restores him exactly back to where he was. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, which is sort of the sign of belonging to the household, and sandals on his feet so that he is no longer um, sort of walking barefoot throughout the world. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Wonderful way to end the parable, but we don't get to end it here um, because there's more to it. Um, but, but interestingly enough, um, he sort of reclosed him in all that he was, which is When you follow Paul's writings about baptism, this is what he sort of sees happening, is that we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead when um, we were alienated from God. And when we're brought back to new life, we're sort of brought back into the character of his son and reclothed again. Um, For Capon, we have two dead people so far. We have the father who's dead. I wish you were dead. The son who reached the end of his life. Um, And then the calf. And Capon says it's this, and this is third, if you, will, if you will, the crucial death in the story, the killing of the fattened calf. Indeed, as far as I'm concerned, the fattened calf is actually the Christ figure in the parable. Consider, what does a fattened calf do? It stands around in its stall with one purpose in life, to drop dead at a moment in order to, uh, that people can have a party. It doesn't sound like a lamb. If that doesn't sound like a lamb slain for the foundation of the world, who dies in Jesus in all our deaths and who comes finally to the supper of the lamb as the peace de resistance of his own wedding powder, I don't know what does. The fattened calf proclaims that the party is what the father's house is all about, just as Jesus, the dead and risen bridegroom, proclaims that the eternal bash is what the universe is all about. Creation is ultimately not about religion or spirituality or morality or reconciliation or any other solemn object. It's about God having a good time and just itching to share it. Um, I love the way in which he says the third character that dies is the fattened calf. Um, In the notes, he does say comically, this one doesn't come back to life, but you can't have everything. Um, (laughs) 
in the parable. Um, so the father died at the beginning of the parable. The son reaches his death in the end in the foreign country. And here um, the calf is slaughtered and enables his party for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Nowen talks about in his um, moments when he feels like the elder son is that you're always suspicious of celebration. What's the party that's happening without me? What haven't I been invited to? There's this noise and joyousness. Didn't they see I was out in the field? So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. In this sort of ways in which we sort of tell ourselves over and over again that there's a party in the world. I think in our elder, okay, the ways in which I tell myself this, and my, I won't project onto you guys, in my elder son state is there's a party going on in the world, but for some reason I was not invited. You hear the noise. You ask what's going on. And your father's killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound, which would be one whom you went off to a far and distant country whom you assumed was dead. You would think that would be the party worth joining. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. I mentioned this at small group. I don't know who first told me this, but when the, elder, the younger son says, you're dead, Give me the money. I'm going to the far country. Oddly, the father doesn't plead with him at all. The father does leave the house for the younger son when he comes back from the far country. It's said when I heard this that the best cure for a sinful life is a sinful life. Is sort of the father's mentality here. Look, I could talk you out of trying to find your own freedom in a far-off land, and those of you who have seen anybody who's decided to do that, does it ever work? Let's rationalize here. How is this going to work out for you? Rationality is not part of the rebellion that drives us out into the far-off land, because if it was, we wouldn't do it. Um, but the father, when you don't want to enter into the party that's happening, actually will go out and plead with you. The older son became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out of the house, out of the party, and pleads with him. Our self-righteousness, our inability to want to be in the party, to want to celebrate, to be this as, um, I have a friend who says that heaven is a party for everyone who can stand to be there. There's an engagement that has to happen to be one who can stand to be there. And abstractly, you might be like, I'm completely fine with those sinners being in the party, but there's probably one, probably one you know by name, um, that you'd be like, but not them. Um, and that breaks us, makes it hard for us to enter into these things. Look, all these years I have been slaving for you. Both the younger son becomes a slave in his freedom. The elder son, imagination of his relationship to the father is one of slavery. For you have never disobeyed your orders, that you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes come homes, you kill the fattened calf for him. Um, 
Carl and I were joking before church. I was like, we all know elder brothers. They don't have friends. Um, uh, um, sorry for those of us who feel like elder brothers today. Um, uh, I always thought that was funny. He has friends that he's, he's talking about. Like, I've never gotten one for my goat. It was probably a celebration he's just talking about. But he, he says, this one who has squandered with prostitutes comes home, and you kill the fattened calf for him. Well, the father, and this is where the parable ends, replies to him, is worth hearing. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Go back to the beginning of the parable. He divided it between his two sons. The father didn't not slaughter the fattened calf for him. The the fattened calf was the elder sons all along. All that is here is yours. I live on your land. I've been dead this whole time. I've divided it, and here I am. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad. The elder son is thinking, did we? Because this brother of yours who was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found parable doesn't end with any sort of solution, so the elder brother goes into the house. And it's the hearers who originally began this parable with saying that he eats with tax collectors and sinners, that this question becomes pertinent to them. Will you go into the house of the celebration? And in that way, this final ending becomes pertinent for us as well. Our younger sonness, can we reach the bottom of our deaths and come to our senses? going home knowing that there is one whom we still call father. Even if we think we go back to hired hand status, we don't even get to that part in our confessions. Can we see the celebration of one who has come home, one whom we've always sort of thought beyond the pale of reconciliation, of being brought back in, and celebrate that this one who is dead is alive, and was lost and is found. And, you know, if I'm honest, um, it takes a lot to be able to do that. To go back to what I think the story might be about is can we go home um, to where this one who doesn't make us a slave, our own minds do that, or who we cast off for our own idolatries and addictions and ways of finding our own life, can we be welcomed back by this one who greets us back again? This is the quote on the back of the bulletin. I won't read the whole thing, but you can fold fold up spiritually, moral, and intellectually and still be safe because at the very worst, all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection and the life, that just makes you his cup of tea. Can you enter into the place where everybody else is dead and be raised to new life? Um, This is from the book of Ephesians. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in his mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And one of my favorite summaries of the gospel, God didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Let us pray. God, we have heard the story 
of one son who sets off to find himself in a foreign country, in a distant land, throwing off the, the order, the tradition, and the goodness of your house, engaged in wild living and all that entails in the ancient world. And yet when he reaches his death, he comes to his senses and sets out for home thinking he has a grand confession that you don't even hear. So to God, we have heard the story of the elder son who when he hears the party, instantly sets out not to go in. The dead have come back to life. So God, we ask that we can become the type of people who both come to our senses and return home, who become strong and capable enough of entering the party, the celebration. And as we are conformed to your image, become those type of people who can embrace as well. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.